Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos. For months, we've been talking about the concept of herd immunity to kick the COVID-19 pandemic. But with new variants spreading and many people uninterested in inoculating themselves against this virus, scientists now believe that may be an impossible threshold to reach. We'll talk about what's ahead. And later in the show, I'll be joined by a local politician who just received his varsity letter 62 years after he says homophobia prevented him from earning it. That's next on Forum, right after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos. Well, there's more good news this week on the vaccination front. Any day now, Pfizer is expected to receive emergency authorization to administer its vaccine to children ages 12 to 15. But the approval comes as vaccination rates among adults slow in many parts of the country and new, more contagious variants spread. All this means that the idea of reaching herd immunity, that is, a time when a high enough percentage of the American population is inoculated against the coronavirus to essentially end its spread, is slipping away. This hour, we speak with two experts about why the U.S. may never reach herd immunity and what it means for you. Joining us are Dr. Lee Riley, Professor of Epidemiology and Infectious Diseases, Division Head of Vaccinology at the UC Berkeley School of Public Health. Dr. Riley, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Um, and also good morning to Aporva Mondavalli, excuse me, reporter for the New York Times. She focuses on science and global health. And she recently wrote an article that really kicked off a national conversation about the future of COVID-19 and this idea of herd immunity. Aporva, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. 
So I want to start with you since um, you wrote this article that I, I really do think kind of helped kick off a national conversation. And I, I want to go back. I mean, we had been hearing since really the beginning of this pandemic that this idea of herd immunity was really key uh, to returning to whatever normal might look like in the future. Um, was there a point in the recent months that you started realizing that that might not happen or, or what really prompted you to to look into this? I hadn't yet realized that we may not get there to herd immunity. And you're right that we've been hearing about that since the very beginning of the pandemic. But I started to call um, some of my sources and other experts because I started to wonder, you know, now that we've vaccinated a certain percent of the U.S. population, which I believe today is around 35 percent, when will we reach herd immunity? And so I was just really looking for a status update, if you will. And um, the very first few people I talked to started to tell me that actually, no, we're never going to reach herd immunity. And and that's when I realized that this is something that they've all known for a while and we should all know about it too. Yeah. And um, I know you talked with one of your colleagues last week on a podcast about the kind of like mental acceptance of that. For you just personally as a science reporter, were you surprised, dismayed? I mean, what was your emotional reaction? I was surprised and dismayed both. But really, the more I thought about it, I I think I should have known because we've known um, that these rates of vaccine hesitancy are so high right now. There's just a very high proportion of the population, something like 30 percent that have said they won't get a vaccine. Um, And we also know that we have these more contagious variants of the virus that are circulating. So the percent of the population that has to be immunized to get to herd immunity has also gone up. So, you know, when you look at those things together, it, it, it is actually kind of obvious that we're not going to get to herd immunity. But I just hadn't done that mental work. Yeah, I know. And all of us are kind of wrapping our heads around this now. I mean, Dr. Lee Riley, one thing last year that we heard about was not just the idea of vaccinations getting us to that, whatever that magic number would be, but that people who had already been infected might have um, some immunity against the disease or virus. Rather, Can you tell us where we're at when we think about, you know, how people who have had COVID-19 in the past year should think about their own immunity and how it relates to, you know, this idea of, of the broader public? Sure. And so and it was, uh, I think early on during the epidemic, <laughs> there was even a discussion about whether uh, we can even reach uh, herd immunity just from the natural infections. And I think this um, idea started in the UK and then they quickly realized that that's just not going to happen. And so so that idea should be completely thrown out that we're not going to reach uh, herd immunity uh, from natural infections. Um, and. Now, we're beginning to also uh, see some evidence that uh, people who had been previously infected could get reinfected. It's not common, but that can still happen. And it's certainly happening in uh, places where we're seeing this huge resurgence of uh, COVID-19, uh, such as in India and also Brazil. And we've had uh, reports, of course, uh, in, even in the U.S. And so uh, we clearly need the vaccine to uh, really maximize uh, the population who can develop immunity against this uh, disease. But I think uh, Purba's uh, uh, article was very important because I think it sort of uh, shook us up. Uh, I think we, we were all sort of somewhat naive in thinking that we could uh, reach herd immunity. I myself am guilty of thinking that way. <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, this is something that we need to really uh, think about more deeply. And, and in thinking about this more deeply, I also, you know, ask myself, 
Uh, have we ever reached any sort of uh, herd immunity with any vaccine preventable infectious diseases? Uh, and, and I can only think of a handful of such diseases. So uh, it's a real challenge. Yeah. A, a poor Vimantavali, um, Vili, do you think that this is something that when you talk to scientists is sort of regional? Because when I look at the map on, you know, embedded in your story and other reporting that's been done, there's a really big, um, you know, gap between certain states or even communities within states in terms of hesitancy versus acceptance. I know here in San Francisco, um, we've had, you know, very high rates of, of folks who have uh, at least gotten the first shot. Um, I think some 74% of people 16 and older. So, I mean, does that, how are we seeing this kind of play out throughout our massive country? Yeah, I mean, when we talk about this heart immunity threshold, we've, we've been sort of thinking about it and talking about it like it's this monolithic thing. But really, the heart immunity threshold varies with so many different factors. How many people live in a place, how how they socialize with each other, how many multi-generational buildings are there, you know, um, just the average age in that population, lots of different things, and, and some socioeconomic factors. So it will be incredibly varied all across the country to the to the level of even individual zip codes um, one expert i talked to was describing how within austin texas you know they they had different rates of vaccination at different zip codes so you could imagine that as they go forward you know one of those zip codes might get a lot closer to this herd immunity threshold than another um, and even globally, if you compare the U.S. with other countries, that will also be different. Every country is going to be at its own level of percent um, of the population that's been immunized. So over the next few years, this is going to be a very uh, scattershot map of you know who's vaccinated and who's not and who which regions and which countries are closer to herd immunity threshold. We're talking about herd immunity and coronavirus with UC Berkeley epidemiology professor Dr. Lee Riley, a New York Times reporter, Apoorva Montevilli. I want to ask our listeners, are you concerned about reaching herd immunity? And do you have questions about vaccination rates and COVID-19? You can give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Dr. Riley, I mean, apropos to what Apoorva is talking about, how should people say in California feel where we are seeing, I think, more acceptance and, and, and willingness to get this vaccine than, than in some states and particularly in a region like Bay Area? I mean, do you anticipate that, you know, we could get to that magic number and, and then have things change because people travel in and out of the region or like, how are you thinking about that? Yes. Yeah, so uh, as uh, Porva mentioned, um, first of all, we don't really know what that magic number is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we do have a very high rate of uh, vaccination here in the Bay Area, I guess close to 70 percent. But that really doesn't mean that uh, the whole whole city or the whole Bay Area uh, has reached that uh, uh, number. Uh, it really varies from neighborhood to neighborhood, even within uh, cities like San Francisco. And, and also San Francisco is an international uh, city. You know, people from all over the world come into the city. And so as long as we're connected to the whole world and the other, other um, you know, states, um, it's going to be really difficult to really maintain uh, uh, interruption of transmission. 
the herd immunity means that you know, we reach a state where you know enough uh, proportion of the population is, is immunized so that no further transmissions occur. But um, in an open uh, community like the Bay Area, that's really difficult to really uh, uh, establish. In order to really establish herd immunity in a true sense of the word, uh, we're really talking about closed communities, such as, uh, let's say, uh, uh, long care uh, f- uh, uh, facilities, senior residence communities or prisons. Uh, you know, maybe in those closed communities, we can achieve uh, herd immunity in the in the in the way uh, we uh, describe it, uh, this uh, this uh, condition. But um, in open communities, uh, it would be very very difficult. Yeah, I mean, Aporva, have you t- heard anybody talk about this? I know some like island nations, like New Zealand, have had really strict lockdowns and not allowing folks from outside of the country to come in. Obviously, you know, we're, we're it's a very different calculation in in the United States. But I mean, do you expect to see that co- some communities might require, I don't know, a a vaccine or negative test or things like that? Is this going to fall more on the private sector to ask for those things? I think it's entirely feasible that countries will require some kind of proof of vaccination. They already require proof of negative tests. And and there are countries in, in the European Union, for example, who have been toying with the idea of passports, vaccine passports. Um, you know, when you think about uh, island nations like New Zealand, the idea they always had, I think, was to close themselves off to the virus until they could vaccinate their entire population. And then they could, you know, fully open back up again. Um, and actually Seychelles, which is also an island, is one of the leading places. I mean, they've had the most um, people vaccinated so far. So I think if those uh, countries do manage to get a you know, huge majority of their people vaccinated, they are going to want to make sure that they continue to keep that up and they will not be so eager to let just anybody come in and bring you know, virus variants in that could undermine the vaccine's effectiveness. Yeah, probably not going to have like a checkpoint on the Bay Bridge here in, in the Bay Area <laughs> for, for folks to come in. Um, we're talking about herd immunity and coronavirus with UC Berkeley epidemiology professor Dr. Lee Riley and New York Times reporter Aporva Mandavilli. Are you concerned about reaching herd immunity? Do you have questions about vaccine rates and COVID-19 more generally? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We're going to take a short break and when we come back, we'll continue this conversation. Thanks so much. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos. We are talking about recent reporting by Apoorva Montevilli of the New York Times about the fact that the United States will likely not reach herd immunity. We also have UC Berkeley epidemiology professor Dr. Lee Riley talking with us. And I want to bring in caller Tariq. Uh, Tariq, you're on the air. Yes, hi. Hi. What's on your mind? Uh, Yes. So I understand that it was known that we were not going to reach herd immunity here in the United States, and that's been known for a while. But I just wanted to um, ask the uh, uh, the person there on the panel if they were aware of the uh, growing number of people and pockets of people in the community who were already prepared for that with a non-vaccinal alternative that uh, they're currently using to deal with both treat and to uh, prevent coronavirus. So uh, that's already underway. And I know there's a site called selectivevaxer.com. And so they're a little bit different than uh, the anti-vaxxers. So they do believe in vaccinations, but uh, they usually couple their choice to be vaccinated or not vaccinated with any particular virus, depending on, you know, based on, medical concerns, uh, philosophy, or religion, uh, they'll they'll actually couple that with the effective non-vaccinal alternative. So again, uh, are you aware of that? Okay. Uh, Dr. Lee Riley, are you, do you know what Tariq is referring to? Uh, no, I'm not uh, aware of uh, these organizations, uh, but I should point out that, you know, right now, uh, vaccine is really the best uh, uh, modality we have to uh, prevent COVID-19. And, you know, we could certainly consider alternative uh, approaches, but uh, by far, uh, it's really the vaccine that's going to really help to blunt the the epidemic. Yeah. Apoorva Mandavili, I mean, how much of this is not just hesitancy, but the fact that, you know, we don't have um, the vaccine authorized for the entire population. We know Pfizer says that, that we're expecting them to get this authorization for 12 and up in the coming days. But I mean, is that is that part of this or is it really just this idea that not everybody's willing to get the shot in the arm? I think the hesitancy is a big part of it, and you know, because it's a new vaccine, it's a new technology that people aren't familiar with, and and some of those people will come around if they see that you know other people are getting vaccinated and and seem to be doing okay. Um, I do think that having full approval will help uh, because it, you know there are a lot of companies and um, schools, for example, that can't really require vaccinations for something that isn't fully approved. And as you mentioned, Pfizer has applied for full approval. Um, but, you know, until they get that in hand, which might take several months, they only have this emergency use authorization. And that will not allow most um, organizations to compel vaccinations. Yeah. Um, I want to bring in John from Palo Alto. John has a question for our panel. Go ahead, John. Um, I have had COVID-19 in February of 2020. I've had both Pfizer shots. I kept asking for the antibody test. They finally gave it to me. It shows that I am immunoglobulin G positive and immunoglobulin M negative. Now, I know that immunoglobulin M negative means, I know what that means. With immunoglobulin G positive, I'm having a very hard time getting doctors to even want to think about this. Uh, 
they only remember what they learned in medical school. And since this is a new thing, and it applies to all the new autoimmune diseases that I, people I know are getting, if you can tell me anything about the meaning of immunoglobulin G for someone who's already had what I had, or if you don't know about it, where I can find out reliable information. All right, John, Dr. Lee Riley, you want to take that? Sure. So no, that's a very good question. So when people get in, uh, infected with some sort of microbe, uh, the initial response by the immune system uh, to that uh, microbe is the IgM. So IgM goes up, but the IgM doesn't really stay up for a long time. So it uh, starts coming down after a while. And then in the meantime, IgG, which is another type of uh, antibody, uh, goes up. And then um, uh, it just stays up for a long time. And so if you have IgG uh, right now, uh, you know, after you'd been infected back in January and then it, you've also been vaccinated, that's a good sign. It's the IgG that's going to protect you against uh, new infections. And so you want that IgG level to be as high as it can be. I don't know if they told you uh, how high the level was, but uh, that's actually a good uh, response that, you, that uh, you've been told. Yeah. All right. We are talking about the likelihood that the United States will not reach herd immunity with UC Berkeley epidemiology professor Dr. Lee Riley, a New York Times reporter, Apoorva Mondavilli. Um, Apoorva, I'm curious, like when you talk to all these experts up to Dr. Tony Fauci himself, how they're thinking about the one versus two dose question, right? Because I know some nations chose to delay the second dose to make sure more people got it. And, and we are seeing obviously um you know some people fall off after that first dose so is there any sense of how protected people can be if they only get a first dose of pfizer or moderna there is some evidence um and what it's actually showing is that uh the protection that you get from one dose is less than what you would get from both doses and also the uh, belief is that you need both doses to sort of cement the response and make it long lasting um, there are a lot of doctors who have, and you know, experts who have argued that giving one dose will buy us more time. We can reach a much broader part of the population. We can get the vaccines out to more people, and and that partial protection, especially because it's it's pretty good partial protection, mm -hmm. is still better than having so many people completely unprotected. But so far, at least, um, the officials who would actually make these decisions, including Dr. Fauci, have been firmly on the side of following what the, the clinical trials tested, which is using both vaccine doses. And, and their reasoning for that is that we don't fully know how people would do with just one dose. And given that we should stick to what we do know, which is in the clinical trials, we were able to show, the companies were able to show that um, having two doses gets you up to you know 94% efficacy. So I'm not so sure that that will change anytime soon. And at least in the US, that argument is uh, also sort of moot at this point because we have so much supply. We are basically reaching a point where we have more supply than demand. So um, the initial arguments about wanting those doses so we can spread them out more doesn't really hold up anymore. Yeah. And Dr. Riley, I mean, 
what are we i think about the last year right and and one of the big fears in the spring was obviously this idea of our medical system being overwhelmed um you know we, we now are at a place where we're in a much better situation on that but you still hear these you know stories about people with long timer symptoms um you know with with you know kids who have these autoimmune responses we don't quite understand so when you think about kind of like individual safety around this versus the bigger question of not overwhelming the system like how should people who are who are willing to get vaccinated think about protecting their families and kids and, and avoiding these bigger issues even if we never reach herd immunity sure so that that's the important question right um you know we've been talking about herd, herd immunity but uh what we're really talking about, or what we should be talking about, is uh, trying to vaccinate as many people as we can, because we can really uh, vaccinate large proportion of the population. We can also prevent these uh, uh, other uh, clinical manifestations that, of the disease that we've been hearing about, such as the multi-system inflammatory syndrome that we uh, hear about in children, and, and this long-term uh, consequence of uh, uh, the natural infection in, in adults. And so um, uh, this is what we should be discussing, uh, you know, uh, and herd immunity is sort of a, uh, a goal that we should still talk about it. It should be sort of considered a type of goal, an ideal goal. And, it, and it's sort of like uh, the, you know, these Olympic athletes, the tr uh, track and field athletes, you know, when they, pra when they practice their long jump, they put a piece of paper uh, uh, at a certain distance, much farther than the distance that they they, they can jump, uh, and they and when they do that, they can really jump farther than uh, uh, what they expect to jump, and so so all the activities, the struggles that we make towards reaching that sort of ideal goal of so-called herd immunity, will uh, contribute to um, uh, preventing these. Uh, 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 adverse consequences of the disease. Uh, and no, it would definitely uh, reduce uh, hospitalization rates and deaths uh, and uh, will prevent these hu huge uh, surges that we've been experiencing. So, so, so we should you know, look at that um, herd immunity as a kind of an ideal goal to strive after. Yeah. I mean, but should people who are vaccinated be worried about this in the sense of like, do we know, you know, if asymptomatic people can have those long hauler symptoms or you know, just the likelihood of getting one of these variants? So certainly variants is a concern. Uh, so far, uh, almost all the variants that we've been uh, hearing about are susceptible to the uh, immune response induced by the vaccine. So, but that doesn't mean that, you know, this is going to continue this way. Mm. Um, the vaccines uh, themselves will not uh, induce any of these uh, uh, adverse uh, uh, consequences that we've been hearing about. Uh, and uh, in fact, the vaccines will prevent uh, these uh, adverse events. And so, um, uh, again, uh, the, the emphasis, emphasis should be on trying to vaccinate uh, as many uh, people as we can. Yeah. All right. Holly writes, do we have any information yet on how long the current vaccines are effective? When and how often should we expect to need boosters? She says, I presume this too would affect herd immunity potential uh aporva mondeville is that something you've been talking to folks about a little bit yeah um so we don't know exactly how long these vaccines are going to last but it uh looks like probably at least six months and possibly longer 
So Pfizer and Moderna are already testing boosters, um, including boosters that are designed specifically for one particular variant that um, is a little bit less susceptible to vaccines than the original version of the virus. Um, and that's really more of a, a fail-safe. It's not, uh, it's not a guarantee that we will need it, but if we do, we will have these booster vaccines available uh, possibly as early as six months from now. The best guess um, from talking to uh, various scientists is that we shouldn't expect to see any variants that completely undermine the vaccines for at least uh, two or three more years and possibly more like five years. So um, in the shorter term over the next year, the vaccines that people have already received will hopefully hold up. Awesome. All right. I want to bring in Matt in Oakland, who has a question for our panel. Matt, welcome to Forum. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I was interested in uh, in international travel and vaccination, um, particularly around families. So, you know, my situation is that I have a family where we have a couple of kids that are under the vaccinational age. Uh, they're not eligible for the vaccines, uh, but both parents are vaccinated. Um, and I was just wondering if there are any guidelines or whether it was just simply not recommended or, you know, if there are any other guidelines that you could offer. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think um, both any travel as we as we approach the summer, um, Dr. Riley, what, what's your sense for families of quote unquote mixed vaccination status? How should they kind of think about this? Sure. Um, so it would, number one, depend on which country you're traveling to. Uh, right now, of course, uh, you probably would not want to travel to a place like uh, Brazil and India. Uh, and so, uh, but if you go, let's say going to uh, uh, Europe, uh, it would certainly help if uh, everyone in the family is vaccinated and, um, you know, maybe uh, we'll start uh, vaccinating uh, kids uh, from 12 to 15 years of age uh, shortly. Um, but if your children fall below the age of 12, uh, that is something that you need to uh, think about. Uh, and you have to sort of really see uh, what the uh, epidemic situation is in the destination country that yeah. uh, uh, you're going to. And so, um, and I would uh, uh, follow the guidelines of the CDC. I would uh, actually contact even the CDC or uh, your local health department who will have the information from CDC uh, to get uh, some uh, feedback yeah. before you start the travel. Yeah, Apurva Mondavili, I mean, what about just plane travel period for people who aren't vaccinated? Do we know kind of the risk there given how, as we've talked about, like sort of disparate the vaccination rates across the country are? You know, it really depends on where you're going. Um, the CDC has said that it really discourages travel unless you really need to travel. And I think that's a good guideline. But, you know, it also depends on where in the country you're going. Um, I think international travel is generally considered to be not a great option right now, mainly because of all the variants that are circulating. So even if, you know, kids uh, get infected and they don't themselves get sick, they will bring back in variants that will then, you know, continue to spread in the United States. Um, so I completely sympathize with the caller. I have a couple of kids myself yeah. and my parents live in India and I would love to go visit uh. them. But, um, you know, we had originally planned to go when the rates in India were very low, but those plans changed as soon as we started to hear about this variant. So a lot really depends on what's going on in the place you're going to and what's going on in the place that you will be returning to. Yeah, it's a, it's a weird thing. I have two young kids as well. And I think, you know, as we as the adults get vaccinated, though, you have to sort of try to titrate what you're able to do with that consideration. Um, 
Elizabeth writes, I'm vaccinated and very happy to be so. I keep hearing that the vaccine prevents severe disease and hospitalization. It sounds like vaccinated people can still get COVID, but get a milder case. If long haul COVID can occur even in mild cases, should we still be concerned and continue to exercise caution? Uh, Apoorva Mandavili, what are, what are you hearing from experts on that question? Sorry, could you repeat that question? Just the idea that if, you know, if, if, you can still get a mild case of COVID after you've been vaccinated. Should you still be worried about long hauler syndrome or other kind of, you know, things that may not land you in the hospital, but could still impact your quality of life? Unfortunately, this is a question we don't know the answer to. I mean, we know that getting um, infected without the vaccine can lead to uh, long COVID, but we don't really have enough information to know what is happening long-term with people who've been vaccinated and are then getting infected. Part of the reason for that is that most people who are vaccinated, the vast, vast majority of people who are vaccinated aren't getting infected. And if they are, we don't know about it because they don't have any symptoms. Um, and, And also it hasn't been that long since people have started to be vaccinated. So we just don't know enough really at this point to be able to say that those breakthrough infections can also lead to long-term problems. All right. Still still learning on this. We have another um, listener who writes, I'm not concerned about herd immunity. As long as the vaccination is available to everyone, the choice to not get vaccinated is your own. Um, if you choose not to, then you may bring trouble on yourself, but that's your choice. Um, essentially arguing you can't always save everyone from themselves. Dr. Lee Riley, I'm, I'd love your response to that and maybe talk a little bit um, in the few minutes we have left about what you know, folks in your field are seeing is helpful to convince people who may not want to get vaccinated to to actually get the shot? So there are many reasons why uh, people, some people may be hesitant to get the vaccine. And so the first thing, the important uh, thing to do first is to find out what the reasons are. And you really have to communicate uh, with these people. Um, And and the people that should be communicating uh, with the so-called vaccine hesitant people are maybe their primary physicians. Uh, People tend to trust their physicians the most. Um, You know, a lot of these people who are hesitant uh, certainly uh, don't trust the the, the government telling them what to do. Uh, And they want to be able to make their own decision uh, based on what they learn and what they know about the vaccine. And so the the best uh, uh, people to do this are their their physicians. Um, And then uh, you know, we really just have to find out what the different reasons are. There are many reasons why people may be hesitant. And if we can understand that, then uh, they may uh, gradually uh, uh, accept uh, to, to go ahead with the vaccine. All right. Thank you both so much. We have been talking about the likelihood that the U.S. will not reach herd immunity with UC Berkeley uh, Professor of Epidemiology and Infectious Diseases, Dr. Lee Riley, and Apoorva Montavilli, reporter for The New York Times, focusing on science and global health. Thanks to both of you. And uh, Apoorva, thanks to you for bringing this up and uh, getting it on our radar. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, thank you. Stay tuned for more Forum up after this break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.